Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. I hope everyone had a great weekend. And um, as we come here today, I know a lot of times at Christmas, the very thing that we're always thinking of is perhaps the birth of Christ. We sing about it. We picture our Lord Jesus as a little baby in a manger with the shepherds there under the stars. Um, And while that is certainly um, a great work that is to be recognized of what Christ has done, uh, there is much more to it than just a baby in a manger. This is a time to reflect upon uh, the completed work of Christ, just as every Sunday, every Lord's Day is a time to reflect upon the completed work of Christ. We look here to Galatians where the Apostle Paul, he expounds for us a little bit more concerning the incarnation and also the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus. The incarnation is something to marvel at, truly, because even at the moment of Christ's birth, even as he is the baby in the manger, looking up at the stars, this is indeed the God man. This is the one who created all that he's sitting under. Even as a little baby, this is still God in the flesh. And it is an amazing thing to consider of when Christ has taken the form of man, he he adds humanity to his being. And he becomes a servant. Through his service unto the Lord, through his obedience unto the father. He was declared righteous and it is indeed his righteousness that is credited to us. Through faith. Here in Galatians, the Apostle Paul really labors that point. Labors the point that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That there are no works of righteousness that one needs to do because Christ has done it all. We celebrate all of those things. Not just the birth, but we celebrate his life. We celebrate his death. We celebrate his resurrection. And indeed, we are going to to reflect upon those great truths today. In Galatians chapter 4, our text will be verses 4 and 5. Now, the Apostle Paul, again, has, has been writing to the Galatians. He has been writing to rebuke them because uh, they had, they had fallen a different, followed a different gospel. They had allowed Judaizers to come into the church. And Ju- <clears throat> excuse me, Judaizers were those who claimed to Christ, but they also emphasized uh, still practicing certain uh, aspects of the Old Testament law in order to be a means for your salvation. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing in the first chapter, he says a very strong words against them. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Then he labors the point in chapter two, chapter three, you are saved by faith alone. He speaks of the law in chapter three. He gives the intent of the law because perhaps he is writing to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles. These Judaizers perhaps seem to make sense. 
that it can't just be that easy. Everyone under the old covenant always followed these specific practices, these specific rituals. Perhaps we need to do that as well. The Apostle Paul again. Rebuking them, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You all are following this law as a means of trying to gain access to the throne of God. But by the works of the law, no flesh will be saved. He writes, verse 10 of chapter 3, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. The law had a purpose. The law is not a means in order to receive salvation, as he expounds in chapter 3. The intent of the law was to hold up before you the righteous standard of God, of which he requires of every single person. It is, it is demonstrating the, the righteous nature of God. It is holy. But the law has no salvific aspect to it. It can only condemn you. Because when you hold up the law and you look at the law and you see all the things that are written of what God demands of every single person, it is very evident that not one of us can do it. And so by striving to keep those things in the law, you are doing nothing but only condemning yourself further. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be saved. There is nothing good that you could ever do, no works of righteousness that you could ever do, no rituals that you could ever perform that will ever bring you into a right standing with God. God demands absolute perfection from every single creature. And even if at one point in your life you begin to try to keep the aspects of the law, you still have failed the times before him. And you will indeed see that you will fail in striving to keep the perfection of the law. He says that the intent of the law was to condemn us, but it was our tutor. He says in verse 23 of chapter 3, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law... Leads us to Christ because it shows us that we can't do it. We're not capable of doing it, but we need someone who can. And that's why it is a tutor to lead us to Christ. Now, in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is still taking that specific analogy. He's using this here in chapter 4 to describe what things were like under the old covenant law versus now. Because perhaps some of his people there would say, are you disregarding the old covenant? Are you disregarding the law? This is... The, the law of your fathers. And so he says, now I say, as long as a, as the heir is a child, he does not differ from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So he is saying that at the time in which they were keeping or striving to do the things that were written in the law. And they had the ceremonial law of which they were doing the sacrifices. And you had the priest in the temple and all of that. He says those were things that were the elementary, elementary things. Those are the things that would eventually point to Christ. 
Christ would come on the scene being the fulfillment of it. These were the things that was necessary at the time in order to do. And in, in response to what the Lord has done for us, this was an exercise of our faith by performing these specific things that God had. It was that we were immature is the idea of what he's saying. You were a child at this time or a minor. You were under guardians or managers. This is speaking of the ceremonial law until the date set by the father. And when the date set by the father in which they matured, these things were done away. And this is what the apostle says here in our text. They were held under the elemental things of the world. He says in verse four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness of time, he's going back to what he has previously said, that you're under guardians until the date set by the father. So at the specific date of the father, the fullness of time, his appointed time, he sends forth his son. This is, of course, uh, giving us an understanding of, of his pre-existence. He had to exist prior to him being human because the father has sent him to the earth. And indeed, the scriptures affirm to us that the Lord Jesus is indeed eternal. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal God. In fact, Isaiah chapter nine refers to him as the father of eternity. He is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as we would reference him. God sends forth his son born of a woman. He is born human flesh. It is emphasizing his humanness. Understand something that there is this there's this enmity between God and man. You have you have God who has, is altogether righteous and holy. You have man who has rebelled against God. And so as a result of his rebelling against God, now God's justice is upon them. Now they're enemies. The one who comes to be the mediator between the two must be a representative of both. So Christ comes as man because man owed the debt. He comes as God because only God has the power to save. And so Christ being the God man is able to take both and to make peace. And so we talk about the virgin birth at this time of year. Why the virgin birth? If Christ had come by natural means of two parents, just like every other human being, he would have been born in sin, just as every single one of us are. We have inherited original sin from, from Adam, and we are all born sinners. So it was necessary that at some point the chain be broken, that Christ would be born of Mary, the one who was chosen by God, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. To come by natural means, but also unnatural means, supernatural means. He was truly human. He was truly a man. He got tired. He got hungry. He got thirsty. All the infirmities that we feel is the weaknesses of our bodies. He felt. Never did he sin. Not at any point. But he actively fulfilled the law of God. Because Paul says there, 
He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. He was born under the authority of the law. He was born under the old covenant law. Under its authority, he was he was he, he was required to keep it just like every other, because this is what's going to bring you before God. It was necessary that Christ come in the flesh and to actively fulfill the law of God perfectly because you and I couldn't do it. And so Christ did it for us. He lived the perfect life. If it was only necessary of him going to the cross, he could have come down from heaven, went to the cross and went back to heaven. But he came through supernatural means in order to break the chain of inherited original sin. He lives a perfect life for 30 years. Again, he was absolutely perfect in every aspect of his being. His divine nature would have never allowed him to have sinned. Because remember, he is still God. He did not relinquish his divinity when he became a man. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was truly man. He was truly God. All of the privileges of what it was to be God sitting on his cosmic throne from all eternity, sharing perfect Fellowship and communion with the Holy Spirit and the Father at a particular time in which the Father had appointed the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, or excuse me, God from all eternity takes on human flesh. He doesn't relinquish his deity in order to become a man. He adds humanity to his being so that you have the divine nature and the human nature that are perfectly joined together. They're not mixed. They're not confused. Each retain their specific properties of what it is to be a man, what it is to be God, yet make up the one man, Jesus Christ. No confusion. He was truly God and he was truly man. And he fulfilled all the righteousness of the law. As we think of the incarnation, we need to be also remembering it's not it's not just about him being a baby. It's about what he was born to do. He was born to live a perfect life. He willingly came for that very purpose. To live the life that you can't. Never will you be able to do enough good. To come into the presence of the father. That's that's one reason specifically why Orthodox Christianity rejects any any resemblance of any works of righteousness that you could ever do, because there are none. There are no works you can do to earn salvation. You do works of righteousness or the things that God has commanded in the scripture. You do those things to demonstrate the truth of your profession. Not to receive it. In the fullness of time at God's appointed time. When the plan had been set. When everything was, was just right. God sends forth his son. And you think about the perfection of the time frame in which he sent him. If you go to Daniel 9, you have a timeline. Of which the Messiah in the 70 week prophecy. When the Messiah was going to come on the scene. You think about all the things that God had did to prepare the way. All the judgments that we find in the Old Covenant under the Old Testament. 
All of those were preparation times for the time in which the Messiah would come. The Lord allowed them to be conquered by Babylon, by Medo-Persia, by the Greek Empire, by the Roman Empire. And in every one of those instances, God was preparing the time in which he would send forth his son. At the time of the Babylonian captivity, it was in Babylon in which they began the synagogues. This is where Jesus is going to go. This is where Jesus is going to be preaching at. He's going to preach his first sermon at the synagogue. The Middle Persian Empire, when they come to power, what do they do? They send them back. They send them back with, with everything that they need in order to start building the temple back. Because the sacrifices must be reinstituted. Because Christ is going to be born under the authority of the law. And he's going to be required to keep them. So they have to be there. Alexander the Great comes in. He conquers the Middle Persian Empire. Alexander the Great spreads the Greek culture over the known world. Where that anywhere you can go, the common language was Koine Greek. You could speak Greek everywhere in the empire. Preparing the time in which he would be able to, or the disciples would be able to communicate the gospel to all the Gentiles. And then the Romans come to power. What do the Romans do? They build 12,000 miles of road to make traveling easier. Make traveling easier from point A to point B in order to get there quicker in order to spread the gospel. All of these things were ready. They were in play for the time in which God would send forth Christ. The eternal God taking on human flesh and living the perfect life in which you and I could not. We celebrate those things as well. Indeed, it is a time to reflect upon his incarnation in his life. But to remember that what he has come to do is not just to be born, not just to become the God man and and have us just to marvel at him. He come for a purpose. And the apostle tells us in verse five. The reason of his coming was so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption of sons. At any time in which we are celebrating the birth of Christ into the world. It is with this in view. It is with this end in view. He came to redeem you. Meaning to buy you. To ransom you. From the curse of the law. Because as we've been talking about. We are all lawbreakers. We hold the law up to ourselves and we see our reflection in it. We just see how vile we are, how wicked we can be, how sinful we are in the eyes of God. And we recognize that there's nothing that we can do. And Christ coming in the flesh, living the perfect life was absolutely necessary. But it was also necessary of his redemptive work in the sense of going to the cross. He goes to the cross to pay the ransom. You owe a debt that you can't pay. We've heard that a number of times. You are wicked, sinful, rebels. And because God is holy, we think of this. We, we need to reflect upon these aspects of God. He is holy. It is, it is like, as we've shown before, if I take a, a sheet of paper and I tear it in half, it means that God is a cut above us. He is altogether unlike us in every part of his being. He is absolute perfection. He is a cut above us in a category all to himself. And because he's holy, 
Because he's altogether righteous, he must do what is right, and what is right is to punish sin. His holiness demands justice. And that justice was met on the cross through our Lord Jesus. The scripture tells us that he is our propitiation, meaning he is our satisfaction. The Lord Jesus Christ was not atoning for our sins by what man had done to him. It was not the beating that he took. It wasn't the crown of thorns that he had on his head. It wasn't being spat upon or having his beard ripped out or his hair ripped out. It wasn't carrying his cross. It wasn't being nailed to it that atoned for your sins. It was that while he was on the cross, lifted up from, from the earth, being rejected by those around him, it was at this moment that God the Father pours out his wrath upon his only son. The perfect communion, the perfect fellowship, the perfect love that existed from all eternity among the Godhead. At this point, he experienced something that he had never experienced before, which was the wrath of his father. That because of your sin, because of mine, everything that we think, everything that we've done, everything that we've said, the things that we haven't even done yet, in view of it all, of those who would believe in him, the scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At this point, the father pours out his intense wrath upon his only son. What Christ was suffering on the cross could not be seen. You could see the human element of it, but you could not see what the father was doing to him. You could not see the great punishment that he was enduring. The very penalty of what is felt in hell is felt upon is, is being delivered upon Christ. To a, a degree that none will ever experience. Because he is suffering on behalf of all of his people. He is paying the penalty. He is ransom. He's paying the ransom. He's not paying the ransom to Satan. Satan didn't have a hold on you. He was paying the ransom to his father. Buying you from his father. That you would be saved from the wrath to come. That's what kind of love that he has. That's what kind of love the father has for you. That he was willing to pour out his wrath upon his only son. The kind of love that Christ has for you is that he was willing to endure it. He was not made to come here. He willingly did it in order to redeem you from the curse of the law, which brings justice, which brings judgment upon you. For the purpose that for him enduring your penalty that he satisfies God's justice against you and that his perfect life, his righteousness, the righteousness of perfection, everything that he had is now credited to you as if you had done it. And now you are brought into the family of God. You have received the adoption, he says. You're not just slaves of God. But you are sons and daughters of God. Through Christ. Think of this, a very simple analogy. You have a bank account, you're negative, negative a million dollars, let's say. 
because of what Christ did on the cross, he brought your account up to zero. You don't owe a debt now because he paid it. But that's still not good enough. He now has his righteousness, his perfection that is credited to your account. That now you have the righteousness that God requires in order to come into his presence. To be loved by him. To have fellowship with him. This is what the son of God did for you. He granted you the adoption as sons. To be heirs and joint heirs with him. Not just to be delivered from hell. That's, that's a blessing altogether just to be delivered from hell. As John Piper says, he could have just placed us in a, in a specific kind of a world in which you know, there's no pain, there's no suffering, but there isn't no ultimate joy either. There's just existing. He could have done that too and that would have been a blessing. But instead, what God has for his people is... is unfathomable to our minds. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. The joy of heaven, the joy of, of being in the presence of God, that's the greatest joy of all. Living forever, that's pretty amazing. One of the great blessings that I'm I know all of us are pretty well looking forward to is never having to struggle with sin again. But the greatest aspect of heaven is that Christ is there. And we finally get to see the one who gave his life for us. That's the greatest joy of heaven because of what he has done in redeeming you and paying the ransom. Now you're brought into his family. Now you're treated as sons and daughters. And now the love that God has for Christ that he had from all eternity. Christ being the object of his, of his great love is now aimed at you because you are now in the Son. The same kind of love that God has for Christ is the same love he has for you now. These are the things that we need to be celebrating at this time of year. The faithfulness of God, the greatest gift in sending Christ. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. His completed work in redeeming us. This is why he came. He was born to die. That's why he came. Dying was not plan B. It was always plan A. But this was the only way that we, he could ever redeem his people. By living for them. By dying for them. And we have the privilege of reaping the benefit of it. That through faith alone we are able to come into the presence of God. Let us be celebrating these things at this time of year, not just marveling at a baby in a manger. The God-man has come to earth in order to redeem His people. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we again thank You for all that You are, all that You've done for us in Christ. Well, Father, let this time of year uh, indeed be a joyful one for us. But to be celebrating what Christ has, has done, both his life and his death, his complete work. Let us be celebrating all of it. 
not just a part of it. Thank you so much for the gift of salvation. We are all undeserving here. Not one of us deserves your grace, but in Christ you granted it. Father, thank you that there is no working our way to you, for we couldn't. But Christ came down to us. He condescended. He took on the form of a servant so that we may know you. Thank you so much for all that he did. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor in all things, Holy Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.